Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to Season 5, Episode 31 of Music is Not a Genre. No, you are not seeing me if you're watching a video, because it's a very special episode. I'm taking a rare, actual vacation this week, but I didn't want to leave you hanging. I didn't want to leave you with nothing this week, so I'm doing something I've never done before. This very special episode of MXG is the first ever retrospective episode, which is a smart-ass way of saying it's a rerun. But it's not any old rerun. It features the first ever three episodes of this podcast, dating from October and November of 2019. I've never shared these since at least that date, and I've certainly never put them together. This is before this podcast was even called Music is Not a Genre. You're going to have to stay tuned and find out what it was called at the time and why it was called that and where it came from. The reason there are three here is because these episodes were a lot shorter at the time. And even though some of, much of the elements and the idea behind this podcast are very much the same as they were in the beginning, you're going to hear and see a lot of differences. And that's why I can jam three into this week's slot because of how short they are. But fear not. Talk about not leaving you hanging. I'm also going to feature at the end of this podcast the four songs that are spotlight songs for these three episodes. I'm going to tack on to the end of this podcast. So you know what I'm talking about when you hear those episodes as well. And as always, thank you for watching and listening. Please take a moment to support this podcast at patreon.com slash music is not a genre. Go like, share, subscribe, watch, etc. at youtube.com slash at music is not a genre. Go to nickdomadio.com, sign up for the newsletter at the contact page, or go to the shop page and get some t-shirts. And please support and listen to my band Rec at recarea.bandcamp.com. Thanks for listening to this intro. Now let's dial up the Wayback Machine. Hey everyone, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to week 175 of 4T, the Thursday throwback track. For those of you who have been reading along for these last three plus years, you will know that last week I wrote that this week will be my first ever video episode of 4T. This is something I plan to continue indefinitely. Uh, For those of you who have not been reading along, who don't know what 4T is or why I keep repeating that, uh, what I do is I take... Uh, music from my collection. I started out with my cassettes. I went through those and I went through all of my 45s, uh, which are small single discs uh, made of vinyl. For those of you who have no idea what that is. Uh, and the uh, related discs. And, uh, and now I'm on to my LPs, which I will continue to plow through until I get to my CD collection. And I talk about what made or makes that music important to me, certain elements of that music, I might tie it into some uh, larger theme, and then I tie it into a song of my own, and I talk about how that music influenced what I do, and how music in, in general, all music, is is related. And my hope there is that uh, we're both learning something, we're both enjoying the music, you get to hear maybe music you haven't heard before, uh, whether it's the music I'm talking about or or music of mine. I'm hoping uh, you know that you are listening to as much as you can of what I post, uh, and or that it's music you have heard before, and it's something you're excited about and want to talk about. And that either way, as I end every post discuss, damn it. I hope that we do have a discussion, and I'm hoping that these video posts create an even 
larger, more vibrant discussion because I'm actually physically discussing. Uh, but for those of you who do prefer to read or don't have time to watch this entire video, I will be posting uh, the text below what I call the untranscript because it will never and, and is not in any way a word-for-word -word rendition of what I'm saying right now because I honestly have no idea what I'm saying right now. Uh, what I do continue to do and will do every week is write out my thoughts as I've been doing on the release that I'm talking about and on the music of mine that I'm tying to that and all the other things that I tend to write. And I will be posting it under the video. And uh, just so you know, all of these videos will also be posted on YouTube, on my YouTube page, and they will also be posted on my website, nickdematio.com. If you go to, I believe it's the, the video, or go, go to the actor page. That's what it is. I think it's nicktomatio.com slash acting or actor. It's on my menu. I don't know. I only happen to be the one who created it, and I completely forget. Uh, but you'll find it there. You'll find it on YouTube, and you will right now especially find it on Facebook. Uh, I believe I might be posting these on Instagram too, but um, we'll both have to wait and see. So with all of that said, let's get into the actual... 175th episode of 4T, the Thursday throwback track. Promise you I won't be doing that every week, you know, unless uh, somebody, you know, really loves my fingers. Uh, and this week, I thought I'd start out with something easy for me anyway, since it's the first video. Uh, it's one of my top five bands, and I'm one of those guys who has at least 15 top five bands. Um, the Cure... And their seminal release, double album, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me. Uh, it is an album that hit me the minute it came out. Um, those of you who are old enough to remember, new music was always released on Tuesdays. And the Tuesday this was released back in 1987, I got it right away. Uh, I had already been turned on to The Cure by a good friend of mine, Mike Smith. Uh, he was playing songs from my all-time favorite Cure album, Head on the Door. I urge you to listen to that, too. And so when Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me came out, I had to get it right away. And it was uh, not at all a disappointment. Uh, the Cure is one of the handful of bands from that era uh, that showed me what really what my music was going to be. It, it, it fed directly into my brain, my ears, my subconscious, my heart, and in in each way uh each each of these handfuls of bands had something in common first of all let's let's go uh with um three we have the cure we have prince and we have u2 they all sound very different uh what do they have in common number one all of the leaders or most of the band members were born about 10 years before i was so they were kind of like uh big brothers to me and 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 um mentors unbeknownst to them uh and uh, it really showed me how possible it was to take many disparate influences and and congeal them into something new something innovative uh and uh, you know we all probably know and most of us know how prince did that um u2 came from a come, come from a punk and post-punk background they added cinematic elements and all the other elements and blues and things that they added eventually throughout their career electronic uh the cure was uh also punk post-punk 
uh, goth in their own way. But that, but the thing all three of those bands had in common is that they were also pop. And as uh, many of you have heard me say a million times, uh, I, I revere the pop music form, whether that means uh, music from the classic era of the 1930s, 40s, 50s, or uh, the Beatles, my number one and always will be, uh, the eras like that, uh, one-hit wonders, or bands that you might not readily consider to be a pop or popular music, but who always strove one way or another to create songs that, and I'm going to read my notes here now, um, that had emotional depth, musical intelligence, innovation, and accessibility. And the accessibility part, of course, is the pop pop part. And uh, everything I do, I try to imbue with all of those things. Again, um, emotional depth, musical intelligence, innovation, accessibility. Uh, I believe firmly that you two did that. The Beatles did that. Uh, the Let's say the Stones did that, if you're a fan of the Stones. Um, uh, Prince certainly did that. And uh, this week's band, The Cure, absolutely did that. They... Uh, I just read an interview with Robert Smith and Rolling Stone because they're coming out with um, 30th anniversary or anniversary of Disintegration, one of my other favorite uh, albums from them. And uh, he talked about how even when he was teens and 20s, working with Susie and the Banshees and people like that, he always had one of his ears uh, towards the pop music world. So they had, uh, you know, swirling you know, teeming, sonic, uh, cinematic palettes, very ambient, dark in many ways. And from out of that, and in, and, and even before that, and including that, came these very tight, strong uh, pop songs that still were able to capture certain key elements of The Cure, um, which, again, I'm going to read my notes. And, and what I wrote here is that they... Uh, uh, were able to express vulnerability. Uh, they were a little twee, you know, a little, little light, a little frothy, a little frivolous. Uh, they were dark, often dark. They were playful. Uh, they, you know, it, it had a sense of humor or just a wordplay, things like that. They were sonically rich, whether it was the way, you know, Robert Smith played guitar or how the music was produced and arranged, whether they used the, you know, ambience of the keyboards and the guitar and, and vocals or added the electronic elements and things like that. And they were catchy. Uh, I'm willing to bet that almost all of us know at least one cure song maybe it's friday i'm in love maybe it's just like heaven maybe it's uh you know love song pictures of you i i don't know there's you know a dozen others or more uh hit singles or lesser songs b-sides album tracks things like that uh but one of the reasons why we do is is a uh, they were diverse. They are diverse. They're still around. They're still creating music. They have a new album coming out soon. And and, and that, again, like you 2 like Prince, like so many other uh, of my favorites, it's, it's what I try to do, which is I don't believe in uh, sticking to one single genre or thinking that all of the music that I do has to sound the same, and neither did any of these bands. They might have uh, signature vocals, which hopefully any you know good good artist does. But even then, there was there was and, and is a lot of diversity in there. Uh, "Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me" is probably I would say their most diverse album. It had elements, and again, going back to my notes. It had elements of uh, 
what I call or or what you know northern soul. It had elements of goth, of course, of pop, of the kind of college rock, modern rock, what it was called at the time. It had it had punk. It had a uh, uh, electronic. It had uh, you know ambient and orchestral and cinematic elements as well. In some cases, one song uh, had all of those elements, and and in other cases, it would bounce from song to song and show off different aspects of things like that. Uh, there are there were three singles from this album that charted in the U.S. and around the world. Uh, the first one you may not remember was called Hot Hot Hot. It was a big dance single. There was a dance remix, things like that. It had a great um, it had a great bass section, but it also had a great horn section. It was uh, not quite the usual Cure song, but it, it was it was them and Robert Smith in particular kind of branching out and showing a different side. Then there was the big single of the day from this album, Why Can't I Be You. Many of you may know it. It has that kind of really quintessential Robert Smith vocal, the kind of vocal breaks he does, his little, you know, mini yodels and things. It's something I I do a lot too um, when when my songs call for it. Um, I'm sure that was why or where I got one of the places I got that from. Um, It shows how clever he was and is with with wordplay and for the phrases he was using. He could take a phrase that seems like an everyday phrase, turn it into something else, or maybe it wasn't even an everyday phrase, but it became one. And then the third single uh, is Just Like Heaven. It's a song that is, to me, near perfect. It's been covered dozens of times i have played it live acoustically and with bands many 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 times i continue to do that i just last month i played it uh solo i've played it with the uh band that i work with uh who does uh 80s covers uh and it's one of my top again five i guess favorite cure songs I think it's also one of the best songs of that era. I think it probably has outlasted Why Can't I Be You and certainly Hot, Hot, Hot. And I honestly think it's probably one of the you know top 100 or 200 greatest you know, songs of all time. Uh, y- you'll find out if you haven't already discovered this through reading that um, I'm not shy about what I believe about music. Uh, music is something that will always mean the absolute most to me other than the people in my life. Other than all my children, the other people I love, it's it's right up at the top. And so um, I'm going to kind of let it fly and let you know what I think about things. Um, if you don't agree, I really want to hear it because that is an awesome way to discuss. If you do agree, let me know too because there's excitement and passion in finding a you know, kindred spirit. Uh, so... That said, and and all the greatness that is The Cure and Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, um, let me tie it into a song that I've done. There are a couple dozen songs, easy, that uh, have been influenced by The Cure. I could even say that because they're in my top five, uh, pretty much every song I've ever done is in some way influenced by them. doesn't mean that the music sounds at all like them. Uh, At times it does. Uh, There's a song from my album, Parts and Labor, which is... Everywhere, Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, uh, just, I don't know, pick, pick, it's everywhere. Um, It's been out for a few years now. It's a song I love to play live. I've done it with a full band. I've done it acoustically. And it has a a certain, uh, there's there's an emotional pull there that gets to places 
that um, you know I I think pop songs can and 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 should often get to maybe not always it has a darkness to it, it has a sadness to it, it has a brightness to it it has a di- dynamism to it that carries throughout the song and uh, it's called it's called break you um, I can't remember if I said that already the link is below and I hope I hope you listen to it you will probably be able to see how certain elements of the guitar the the vocals the lyrics especially the vulnerability in the lyrics um, were influenced by the cure uh, and bringing it back around to the cure as always um, I'll talk about my favorite tracks from this album here's the back cover here Uh, I am not going to talk about my favorites this week. Sorry. Because this is a double album that I have listened to over and over and over again. And although I could probably say, oh, this one, you know, maybe not as favorite. Once you get past 10 songs, there's really no point in talking about what your favorites are. So instead, I am going to point out a song that most of you probably don't know, but you really should. It's called How Beautiful You Are. It is a perfect example of what The Cure does best. It's it's a beautiful song, both lyrically and sonically. It's it's a song that is both delicate and and firm and, and robust all at the same time. And I think ties in quite well with my song Break You. Uh, if you have, let's say, well, I guess it would be about eight minutes, check out both of those songs. Go ahead and listen to my song, Break You. Go ahead and listen to uh, Look Up, uh, How Beautiful You Are by The Cure. And uh, thank you for watching me and listening to me and reading uh, with me all of these years or just today and welcome. And uh, as always, until next week, discuss damn it hello pantheon podcast listeners christian swain here to tell you more about my experience with raycon earbuds our family now has three pairs of raycon earbuds around the house and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price and yes she loves them now if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of raycons Or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good. Well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner. And Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. 
Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S.
Hey everyone, uh, welcome to week 176 and video episode number two of the Thursday Throwback Track. Uh, as always, we're going through my collection, uh, currently on my LPs, final albums, records, whatever you all want to call them, uh, discussing some of my favorite music and how it's influenced the music I've done. Uh, again, as in video number one, I'm keeping it kind of easy uh, for myself because, you know, it's all about me. And uh, sticking with one of my uh, top five bands of the 15 that I continually keep referring to. And this one is uh, kind of a, not a surprising one. It's U2 and their first album, Boy, which was released in 1980, uh, four years after they formed. It uh, is a seminal album, of course. Uh, I don't know if it, it you know, where it ranks as far as my favorite U2 albums. I'm sure it did. you may not know it. It's one of their lesser-known albums. Uh, they did have um, a couple of hits on there, some of which they still play. Uh, the most famous one being I Will Follow, which I'll talk more about that later. And, um, you know, other than that, it was seminal because it helped to uh, launch uh, their career, really, and launched them in the U.S. because they toured there and from the get-go started to gain fame uh, for their version of the post-punk genre. Post-punk has a lot of definitions, a lot of sub-genres, but for me, and again, I'm uh, referring to my notes in front of me here, um, the 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 post-punk that I like, that I associate with that genre name, uh, has is is rhythmic, ambient, crisp, sparse, melodic, emotional, both organic uh, and electronic, as far as instruments goes, and both pop and experimental. And uh, some other bands that might fit in that category, the, especially in the way I just described it, would be The Cure, again, uh, Joy Division, who became New Order, uh, The Jam, a lesser-known band who everyone should listen to. Uh, they weren't around long, but man, did they influence a lot of people, including Block Party. Uh, and uh, PIL, Public Image Limited, which was uh, John Lydon, or Johnny Rotten's band, uh, who came out of the Sex Pistols. So in some ways, uh, in, in a couple of these, at least, post-punk was literally post-punk it was after some one of the more more of the members had done punk and decided to branch out and make it a little bit um you know more eclectic uh and that's where we are so uh again u2 was another band like the cure like the beatles like some of my like prince uh, that showed me what was possible in music they introduced me to things that i hadn't heard before again um, I was introduced to them by a good friend of mine from high school, and then I dug back into their old catalog. I think at the time, uh, The Unforgettable Fire was was out, and that I think still probably ranks as my favorite uh, U2 album, or certainly in the top three. Uh, and and once I heard songs from that, I said, I have to hear the rest of this. And so uh, at the time, you know, uh, I went to Full Circle Record Exchange, uh, which anybody who grew up in South Jersey might know is one of the great uh, indie record shops, and found as many uh, old U2 albums as I could. And if I didn't go there, I went to Tower Records, like everyone else. And uh, because I'm kind of uh, anal about certain things, I go in order. So I started with Boy being their first album. What I liked about U2 is what I like about a lot of music and, and, and what I try to bring to my music, which is they had, uh, they had, and they've talked about this in, in subsequent interviews, they had a reverence for what 
existed then in the in the 70s they loved punk they you know they they loved what was going on in the late 70s they loved disco and 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 funk and all that stuff they also had a reverence for what came before uh some people who know them fairly well uh might liken them to the who in terms of their uh, their big bold sound their emotionality and certain other things uh you know the fact that it was guitar centered and all of that and and yet through all of that they they uh without really maybe even thinking about it made their own rules for what music could be or for how to interpret everything that they were absorbing which i think every artist artist does and i just happen to find fascinating uh i try to talk about that a lot in terms of my music which is pretty much what this this whole series is about um but to, to you know examine other artists and see you know where they came from and and you know where they ended up going is just it's it's amazing even in their in their earliest incarnations when they weren't quite fully formed like on U2's boy uh you can still hear them as being them you can you can hear you know their own unique take on music their personality their quirks you can you can hear all the influences that they had and you get a real strong sense of where they ended up going i know that's kind of you know hindsight uh you know vision uh, but it but it works. Uh, you really if if U two isn't your favorite band, that's cool. Try it with a band you love and go back and listen to their first album and say, oh wow, yeah, I can hear elements from their tenth album or fifth album on that first album. It's it's actually pretty awesome. And I know they changed throughout the years. They added new elements. They de-emphasized some. They emphasized others. They got better at certain things. Uh, one one thing I remember pretty famously in the late eighties, early nineties is. Uh, is uh, Bono talking about his falsetto and how he wasn't all that good at it early on. And man, that became one of his go-tos throughout the 90s and beyond. Uh, So, you know, things like that, great artists continuously grow, they continuously absorb and they continuously kind of, you know, regurgitate what they, what they know from, from a, from a real, you know, kind of heartfelt and unique place. Uh, And, and, you know, yet through all these changes, they're still you too, just the way the stones are still the, the stones. And, um, you know, and the way I'm, dis- I'm discovering by sharing with you on Saturdays, my old songs, uh, you know, in reverse chronology, that uh, as, as many changes as, I, as I've gone through, I still have, I started with the same elements that I have now. I, I know there were certain things I, again, just like with you too, I've abandoned or I, you know, I've gotten better at or I've emphasized or not, but all of those same elements are there. And they're really kind of the elements I listed in that first paragraph, uh, you know, rhythmic, ambient, crisp, sparse, melodic, emotional, both organic and electronic, both pop and experimental. Uh, a lot of my production isn't as sparse as some of the post-punk bands. I like to layer a lot of layers, but not for everything, um, which I'll talk about a little later as well. Uh, now, the subtitle for the text for this week 176 is what I do for music. And, uh, you know, I just had a gig last night, so my voice is kind of tired. And we played a set of songs that we prepared more or less. And uh, the audience, the, the crowd was a birthday party, loved it so much that they uh, asked us to uh, play more. And because it was a band that, you know, we haven't quite done all this stuff before, we weren't sure we were going. So we just took requests and we, we, either, we either half knew it or didn't know it or one of us knew it. And we just all jump in. So there were at least five songs last night that I played on stage that I had never 
played before in any capacity in my life. And it was one of the most fun gigs I've ever had. Uh, but, uh, you know, some other illustration of what I do for music goes back to and refers back to you too, which is when I was in college, uh, I had a friend um, in the acting program, Ralph Colombino, who had a band that almost got signed. Uh, it's a totally different story. They had some originals, uh, one of which I love and hope to share uh, someday because I still have a cassette copy of it. And they did a bunch of covers, and Ralph's two favorite bands were The Who and U2, and and he saw the similarities between the two, and uh, he brought that out in his band. So I co-produced a music night at uh, the, one of the college centers there at Rutgers, uh, which featured a bunch of artists, including me. I did a, I did a cover it in original, and Ralph's band. And one of the songs Ralph's band played was U2's I Will Follow, which still ranks as not just one of the top, you know, uh, songs from uh, this album, certainly, and from U2 in general, but but uh, of all time for me. And uh, what happened was their drummer forgot to bring uh, his rug or anything that would keep the kit from sliding across the tile floor. And so because the show must go on and because of my intense love for music and wanting to just kind of, you know, help any other artist. Uh, I volunteered as the host to sit in front of the kit, my back to the kick drum, uh, put my hands on my ears as tightly as I could. And for the duration of their very short set, I think it was three songs, um, prevent the kit from sliding forward so that the drummer and they could have as kick ass of a set as they possibly could. And um, I loved every minute of it, just like I loved every minute of last night's insanely impromptu show. Uh, so going back to you 2 and referring it or, or connecting it to my music, lots of my songs have been influenced by you 2 in one way or another. But there's a particular song that an old friend of mine, the minute she heard it, said, this reminds me of you 2 and in fact reminds me of early U2. I don't know if she referenced I Will Follow, um, but in general, that's, excuse me, that's what she said. And um, I mean, it thrilled me because I know that the song I, you know, wrote came from a, a you know, pretty uh, specific and original place. But the way I produced it, I wanted it to have that energy. I don't know if I specifically thought of you two, but I know they were in my head in some way. And that song is called uh, Little White Lies. And it's from my uh, EP, Distance to Empty. Uh, the links, again, are all at the bottom here, including a different version of what I just said. Uh, I urge you and, and, and welcome you to uh, click uh, the link for U2's Boy and explore that. Click the link for Little White Lies and listen to, to that. It's, it's one of my personal favorites, especially from that, uh, you know, that EP. And to, uh, you know, tell me what your favorites from this album might be, what your favorites from U2 might be, if you don't like U2 at all, if there's another band that you that you have the same feeling about, I, I really want this discussion to continue week after week. So please, you know, leave your comments. And uh, don't forget, you can find all of the music that I share uh, of mine on pretty much any streaming service, iTunes, Spotify, uh, even YouTube, all of that. 
So please uh, explore further. You can go to my SoundCloud page, which I often link. You can go to my uh, Bandcamp page, which I often link. You can go to my website, nickdomadio.com. I am more than happy to share anything with you personally as well if you have any requests. Uh, And uh, as always, uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for reading. Thank you for discussing. And uh, until next week, this is Nick Tomadio and the Thursday Throwback Track. Double
Hey everyone, I'm Nick DiMatteo and welcome to week 177 and video episode number 3 of 4T, the Thursday throwback track. This week's band is uh, a personal hometown Philly, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania favorite of mine, The Dead Milkmen, and their first four albums, which uh, I have on LP, and they are Big Lizard in My Backyard, Eat Your Paisley, Bucky Fellini, and Beelzebubba. I also have their subsequent two albums on cassette. And those first six albums, I, I, I dove into head first uh, and, and never came up for air, really, and, and, until sometime in the early 90s uh, when things started to wane for them. But up until that point, they were a pretty seminal band for me. I had seen them live uh, several times, mostly in and around South Street, and including uh, the historic and famous uh, Trocadero theater which was a theater and a and a burlesque hall and a music venue uh ever since 1870 until it apparently i just read closed uh, earlier this year i have a feeling it'll be open again at some point because uh it's been around forever and i'm sure it had lean years prior to this uh, but who knows uh, happy to have not only seen shows there but played there once with my uh, old band-aid cafe um it's a great place south street in general great place the Dead Milkmen, very connected, uh, not just to Philly, but to South Street in particular. For those of you who have any knowledge of this band at all, you probably know their song, Punk Rock Girl, which was their only giant hit. Uh, I think it was around 1988. Uh, and they mentioned South Street and a lot of places on South Street and things like that. If you know them at all, again, that may be where you know them from. Or if you're from Philly, you have probably heard of them and, uh, you know, and, and are, or are old enough to have heard of them. Uh, they were uh, a, a second wave punk band in that, uh, you know, punk started in the 70s uh, and they started in the, you know, early, in the mid 80s, really. They were formed in 83. Their first album, um, Big Legend in My Backyard, came out in 1985. So they're really very much of the 80s, especially when, you know, they were kind of in their cult and, and developing years and into their, uh, you know, brief uh, period of commercial success. And uh, so they had been influenced by, you know, earlier punk bands uh, like the Dead Kennedys. Uh, I had always thought that they got their name from the Dead Kennedys and were just uh, making a joke about the name because it seems silly to combine the words dead and milkmen. And I think that still probably was part of the influence there. And you can tell if you know anything about the dead milkmen, they're uh, funny. They, they're always trying to be um, funny in either very open ways or very subversive ways. They have pointed, jagged lyrics. They had pretty adolescent lyrics back in the 80s for some of their songs. And But, you know, as they developed, they got a little bit more, uh, I, I don't know, they, their lyrics got better. Um, but uh, from the beginning and really still till this day, they have that kind of uh, pointed irreverence in both their lyrics and their music. Uh, what I found out in reading about them is that um, according to the main dude, they actually got their name from a character from a Toni Morrison novel, uh, which I think the character was uh, named Milkman, Milkman Dead or something like that. I don't know much about it. Sad thing is, I think I read that novel a long, long time ago, but I don't remember anything. Honestly, at this point, uh, unless I look it up again, I I, I don't know. Uh, but I can tell you a whole lot about not just the Dead Milkmen, but Philly music in general. Uh, anybody who is either from Philly or knows anything about about Philly knows that it is a huge music 
town uh, to this day and certainly back in the last several decades. Um, their radio to me was more vibrant than many, you know, than even New York City. And I've been in New York City for 20 years. And back when radio was a thing, which was still sort of a thing when I moved here, um, I was pretty disappointed in, in, the, in the pickings here. And I can tell you in Philly that there was pretty much every single thing on the radio. Philly is and was that and has always been really that kind of town. It, it, it's sort of in, a, in an area where a lot of different things meet. You have the kind of Northeast influence. You have the, you know, you know f- uh, further out into the Midwest influence sort of or the, you know, the North uh, Central and that kind of area. And, of course, the Southern influence and things like that. All of that came together in kind of an urban slash suburban uh, way with the touches of everything else to to form uh, various versions of what is known as Philadelphia music. Uh, my, da- my dad, for those of you who know me, you may know my dad. My dad was a huge Philadelphia music star in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, he even toured uh, nationally and in Canada and South America and rock and roll reviews and things like that. He was a, a big band singer and and everything, and um, he he benefited from being in Philadelphia and being a part of one of the big scenes there. The uh, uh, jazz was a huge uh, thing in Philly and 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 still is, but it, but when it was really developing, Philly was one of the important places for jazz, uh, doo wop and fifties music. Lots of bands in the fifties uh, from the Philadelphia area. Lots of songwriters too. Um, in the seventies, there was Philadelphia soul, and that's huge. If anybody knows Philly soul. Uh, or anything about Philly music, they probably know Philly Soul. Uh, in the 80s, when I grew up, there were bands that were either just starting to make their name uh, or maybe had a little before, like Joan Jett from that area, the Hooters, um, Robert Hazard and the Heroes. Robert Hazard uh, uh, also kind of came to fame as being the songwriter of uh, Girls Just Want to Have Fun for Cindy Lauper. Uh, and uh, one of the uh, bands from Philly was actually Cindy Lauper's backing band for a while. Uh, and there were other bands who were starting out in the 80s but hadn't quite hit their stride or their big fame, uh, such as uh, Boys to Men, Will Smith, Fresh Prince, uh, The Roots, who are now on TV every week, uh, and Live, uh, Throwing Copper, the, the, that band, uh, if anybody knows uh, I think Lightning Crash or something like that, something in the 90s. They actually started in the 80s. Um, Well, I started in the 80s, too. And so I was immersed in all of that. And I was immersed in the Philly attitude toward music, which is if it's good music, it's good music. It doesn't matter what kind of music is. And what that did to artists growing up in Philly in many ways. And and let me not forget, you know, having mentioned the roots and freshmen's and all that Philly was a huge and very seminal city for development of hip hop, too. in the in the early 80s even as far back as that uh but what that did for artists who grew up in and around philadelphia and i grew up mostly in south jersey although i was born you know in philadelphia and and had and still have relatives there is that it created this sort of amalgam of styles that each artist um manifested and expressed in a different way. So many, many of the bands who come from Philly have kind of a mix of styles that combines both the idea of of being true to the form of whatever that is. For example, with the Dead Milkman, it was uh, punk and surf punk and that, you know, and that kind of thing. But also uh, 
observing it from the outside from a slight remove in kind of the way that Philly is a slight remove from New York. Uh, and so, and so commenting on it in a way too, which is something that Dead Milkman did a lot. They did, you know, they didn't just do the lyrical commentary in their music. They, they, you know, commented on the music they were doing by in some ways poking fun at it or sending it up or doing uh, meta versions of a punk, you know, song. And, um, you know, you, I mean, you can hear that in a lot of, in a lot of bands in general, but in a lot of Philly bands throughout the years, and and, and certainly in pretty much all the music I do, that sort of mix of styles that is both, um, you know, reverent uh, of the whatever genre that you happen to be doing at the time, but also kind of irreverent, kind of uh, picking it apart, poking fun at it, doing things a little bit more experimental, adding some quirky things in. Um, and an interesting thing about the Dead Milkman style is that it captured something that a lot of people don't know about Philly and South Jersey, which is um, there were a lot of, and and may still be a lot of, uh, you know, skaters and surfers uh, in that area. And, you know, I, I uh, happen to be with uh, someone now who is from California, and I've always been fascinated with that state. I've been there a few times and would like to spend a lot more time out there actually um, but as far as music goes, that kind of uh, surf punk and, and all of that stuff or, you know, or even the, that California punk like Agent Orange is a, is a good example from the 80s uh, has been a somewhat of a favorite of mine or Waves, the, the band with two V's uh, that's more recent. Uh, another great um, example. The Dead Milkman had that sound and um, they, you know, they showed that that Philly area actually had a lot of that kind of, you know, surf punk, skater punk attitude to it. And it's something that's, you know, certainly influenced uh, a good portion of what I've done at any rate. Uh, but the big thing about the Dead Milkmen, as uh, anybody who knows them knows, is that they were goofs. Um, they were in, in, intended to be funny. Um, they were more more irreverent, but equally as goofy as, let's say, they might be giants uh, or people like that. They were they predated a band like Presidents of the United States of America, who did that song Peaches in the nineties. They were able to make songs at times that had a good, strong pop sensibility, but still maintain their their goofiness and their kind of often lack of regard for certain you know aspects of lyrical structure and things like that. Um, and that's one of the reasons I love them because they clearly loved the music they were doing, but they they did it and acted like they didn't care. And that, you know, of course, that's part of the punk attitude. It's to, you know, throw away, throw away the old and not get so caught up in having your, you know, getting your chops down perfect and all that stuff. And uh, there was always that division between hippies and prog rock and then punk and new wave and all that stuff. And the Dead Milkman certainly played up on that in both, I think, a, a probably a sincere way, but also in kind of a send up commentary way, like we're punks and we're going to hate hippies. So they did a song like The Thing That Only Eats Hippies or, you know, Beach Party Vietnam and things like that were clearly meant to be uh, satirical uh, and honestly, really just goofy. And humor, I think can be very open and, and, and abrasive and, and in your face in music, but it can also be very subtle. And they did both. And, but there are other bands or, you know, big bands, even the Beatles and, and, uh, 
you know, Billy Joel and, and bands straight up until today, a lot of hip hop artists who uh, weave humor into their lyrics in ways that you might not readily catch. And that's one of the things that um, I really enjoy doing. And so you can hear uh, some of that in a lot of the music that I've put out um, right up until this day. And that's one of the ways in which the Dead Milkmen influenced me. And I'm happy to say that through all of their ups and downs and the, the unfortunate suicide of one of their members in 2004, um, they, they broke up years before that. They reformed again uh, years later, I think in 2008. They've, they are still around. They're still performing. They're with a, uh, a local Philly label that is a socially conscious label that gives part of its proceeds to charity. And um, their recent material... Uh, and I think they put out an EP in 2017 is the latest thing that they released is as good as, and honestly, I, I think is, is uh, better than their, their older material. They, and you know, that's one of my favorite things is a band that is supposedly from one era who is still around, who has still been around. And, um, it's, it's kind of like the story of Philadelphia. There's a, there's a sense of being the underdog, the sense of being slightly removed from the action, but still kind of in the action and, and yet never giving up, always knowing that somehow you're in the mix. You have, may have a weird way of doing it or, a, or kind of a insider slash outsider way of doing it. And, and, and yet you're still there. And, um, that's, that's the dead milkman. That's so many things about Philadelphia in general. And that's, uh, and, and then that's me. That's a lot of what I do with my music too. So a couple of examples of songs that, the that can be somewhat directly linked to the dead milkman um and again you can find uh, the link to dead milkman info and these two songs in the text below uh are my song uh, my recent song the garden um which is going to be on an upcoming ep uh simply for the weird which i'll be releasing in the next month or two um and uh, a slightly older song from 2015 from my album, The Sunshine Seminar, Xmas, which is spelled X-M-I-S-S. Um, the lyrics are, you know, they fit into that kind of Dead Milkman feel of either just out and out goofy like the garden and what is exactly it's supposed to mean. I, I, I don't know. It's riffing on something or Xmas, which has... Uh, a real jagged, you know, commentary on a relationship, uh, you know, feel to the lyrics, but clearly has some humor in it too, straight from the title, straight on to the end of the song. Uh, so I urge you, as always, to listen to the band that I'm discussing, the, De the Dead Milkman. Listen to any track or tracks that I share of mine. Everything's always in the links. You can also go to recarea.bandcamp.com. You can go to my SoundCloud page. You can go to my website, nickdematio.com. You can find all of this stuff everywhere. Um, scroll down and look at the, the text below, which is not in any way a transcript of what I've just said. Uh, that does have some additional information, including some of my favorite tracks from these four albums and uh thank you again for listening and i hope to see you again next week and don't forget to please comment whether that's in audio or video or text or send me a link or talk to me about why you like this band why you hate this band or any other band that you think might be related or completely unrelated to the topic this week i'm always trying to start conversations um, that's what the Thursday throwback track is all about. That's what generally my music career has been all about. Thank you again. And I will see you next week. Oh my love.
Christmas Day. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.